I'm Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly. I've been thinking a lot these days about change. In part, that's because we Jews just celebrated the High Holy Days. And facing the new Jewish year ahead, I'm thinking about what I want to change, how I want to be better. But mostly it's because my wife, Nellie, and I just welcomed a baby into the world. One of the most intense, revolutionary changes a person can experience in this life. Change is a lot of things. It's amazing. It's hard. It can be uncomfortable. And in the case of becoming a parent, very, very tiring. But maybe the hardest type of change of all of them is the change that we make that's invisible. It's the change that we make for ourselves, by ourselves, inside ourselves. I'm talking about changing our minds. The stakes of this type of change can feel very high, sometimes almost insurmountable. And that's because in today's world, the personal has become political and politics has swallowed everything. So to change your mind, to change your politics, to change your view of an issue is to risk betrayal of your people, your group, your tribe. It can feel safer to bury your head in the sand, to plug your ears to new information But as I've been reflecting on all of the changes in my own life over the last few weeks, I'm ever more convinced that changing is a hopeful act. So for today's episode, the science behind belief change. It's an interview that originally aired on my friend Sam Harris's podcast, Making Sense. Sam Harris is a lot of things. He's the best-selling author of The End of Faith and Letter to a Christian Nation. He's a neuroscientist, a meditation teacher. And for years, he was probably one of the most prominent and passionate critics of religion, a hero to young atheists everywhere. But for much of the past decade, Sam's focus has largely shifted from what we as a society should stop believing and a bit more toward what values and beliefs are worth living by and how we can come to embrace those ideas. In this interview, Sam talks with Jonas Kaplan. Kaplan is a cognitive neuroscientist at USC, and Kaplan and Sam published a paper together back in 2016 about the neural mechanisms in the brain that cause people to maintain their political beliefs in the face of counter-evidence. They talk here about that surprising research, as well as the power of persuasion, the connection between reason and emotion and mistaking emotion as evidence, wishful thinking, and most importantly, how we can become more critical of ourselves and more objective as we form new opinions. This interview was recorded a year ago, but I think it remains relevant, if not urgent today. As Sam has said many times before, we only have two choices to resolve conflict as human beings, violence or conversation. To change your mind or to be open to changing your mind is to choose conversation. We'll be right back with Sam's interview with Jonas Kaplan. Stay with us. There's so much more to Jewish history than persecution. I know it's sometimes hard to believe that when you talk to Jews, but trust me, there is. And in Jewish History Unpacked, the newest podcast from the people who brought you Unpacking Israeli History, you'll find out about some of the craziest, most amazing, but lesser-known stories that fill the Jewish history books. Given that the Jewish people's history goes back for millennia and spans continents and epochs, there are so many stories you just won't want to miss. You'll end up asking yourself questions that you never thought of, like, was Napoleon actually a hero for the Jews? And why were there so many suicide pacts in the first century? Hosts Yael Steiner and Jonathan Schwab will fill you in on what happened, how it happened, and why all of these ancient stories still matter. You can find Jewish History Unpacked wherever you listen to your podcasts. You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show, where we expose how patent trolls shake down innocent victims using legal loopholes and abuse of the system. Hello, I notice you've been sued for patent infringement. I'd be happy to represent you for a price. Just remember, your defense cost is going to run around $3 million. Wow. The patent we were sued on had, as I recall, 113 claims. 
and every claim was almost the same. In other words, one claim would say, a computer accessing another computer to unlock software. And the next thing would be, software unlocked by one computer accessing another computer. That was just the same thing over and over 113 times, phrased a little bit differently each time. Since it took us four years and $2 million to overturn one of those sentences, they could put us through this for the rest of our lives. For more with Austin Meyer, including the details of his investigation into patent trolls and why none of us are safe, check out episode 326 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. I'm here with my friend Jonas Kaplan. Jonas, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me, Sam. So uh, you and I now go way back as uh, Father Time is meeting out blows year by year. I've known you for at least a decade, a decade plus, but perhaps summarize your background as a neuroscientist and the kinds of issues you focus on now. Sure. I am a cognitive neuroscientist and uh, I use mainly neuroimaging techniques to study how the brain works. Uh, maybe I can list off my uh, litany of academic titles. It's like a medieval mm-hmm. court. I'll give you an idea. So I'm a research professor at the Brain and Creativity Institute at USC. I'm the co-director of the Dornsife Neuroimaging Center, and I'm also the associate director for mindfulness and neuroimaging at USC's Center for Mindfulness Science. Nice. So that gives you some idea of, of what my research interests are, but I've studied a lot of different things from ranging from belief and values and, and empathy and how we resonate with other people and uh, a whole bunch of other things that interest me. So now we're talking about something that's really in our wheelhouse because we have done some neuroimaging studies together on this very topic. We're talking about belief and belief change and resistance to belief change. Why is this an important topic? It's such an important topic. You know, belief flexibility is just essential to everything we do as a society in so many different ways. We just need to be able to influence each other. When we have conversations, the whole point of having a conversation is to get some information across especially in a democracy, it's really important that we're able to influence each other on the basis of conversation, because if we can't, the only option available to us is some kind of violence, right? So to be able to change as new evidence comes into fruitful conversations to advance science and education, all of these things require some amount of flexibility in our belief. It's particularly prominent for me as a scientist. I mean, this is the the very basis of science is some kind of assumption that as we gather new evidence, we can update our models of the world and our beliefs. And so if we have difficulty doing that, or if there's things in our psychology that make it hard for us to do that, we need to know about them. Yeah, so we're, we're recording at a moment where these concerns are especially salient because we're in the middle of the pandemic and just awash in misinformation about more or less everything. I mean, there's political partisanship of a sort that I don't think we've ever seen in our lifetime. There are conspiracy theories on almost every topic of social importance. People have balkanized into these echo chambers online. The public health messaging during this pandemic has been almost impossible to get across because every shred of reasonable skepticism on any point gets amplified into just a a complete breakdown of epistemology where we think we know nothing for certain about anything of consequence. And so people can't even agree. As you get anywhere toward the edge of mainstream opinion, you find otherwise intelligent people who can't even agree that the, in this case, the pandemic is real in some basic sense. Almost every aspect of this can fall under doubt. And then it becomes almost impossible to have a conversation about what's real. Just trying to converge on a set of facts that all parties can acknowledge becomes an impossible task when people start out sufficiently far apart and they're being emotionally hijacked once any of these conversations get started and they're mistaking their emotional reaction for further evidence of the truth of their beliefs. And you, you can become sensitive to this in yourself, you know, you you have certain things you believe are true, and then you bump into counter-arguments or counter-evidence or just, you know, people who are espousing an alternate view of reality. And 
sort of depends what we're talking about here. But in the generic case, you're either attached to these beliefs because you think they're true, or you're perversely attached to them because you want them to be true. But in any case, you meet in yourself an unwillingness to reconsider the matter and a an almost visceral feeling of revulsion or contempt for people who would push too hard on on a door you're trying to keep barred. And it's really the, o- the only place where we are at all disciplined and good about getting out of our own way here and revising our beliefs is in science. I mean, that's re- really is what makes science science. It's a, it's a methodology for being increasingly sure that you're not fooling yourself. And granted, we're, we're imperfect here, and there's a history of scientific fraud and scientific ineptitude, but obviously the, the remedy for that is always more science and better science. It's not some alternate mode of wish fulfillment or you're merely imagining what's true. This conversation, I'm sure, will be evergreen, and you know, if you come back in five years, this will still be relevant uh, to think about, but at the moment, its relevance is fairly excruciating. It's hard to believe. I mean, when we first, when you and I first started working on this issue in neuroscience, maybe 15 years ago or so, uh, it's certainly not an issue that was on the forefront of everyone's minds. And now it seems like it's what everybody wants to talk about. And, you know, it is, I think one, one thing you said there is really important, this aspect of trying to recognize this process in ourselves. Because a lot of times when I talk to people, the, the, the biggest question is, you know, how can I get my aunt or uncle to, to believe me, to understand what I'm saying? And how can I influence someone else? What's, what's the key to persuasion? And that is one way of looking at the problem. But I think it's actually potentially more fruitful to think about the other way around. So instead of how we can be better persuaders, you know, how we can make ourselves more open-minded and more available to evidence as it comes in, as we recognize the reasons why we're not in the first place, which is what we're going to talk about today. Okay, so let's talk about uh, what we know about changing beliefs. I mean, obviously, we learn things about the world, albeit slowly and sometimes begrudgingly. And that that is synonymous with belief formation in in the sense that we're using the term. I, mean, I guess perhaps one thing we should clarify here is that in its colloquial use, people often distinguish belief from knowledge. In our usage here and really throughout most of the relevant fields, certainly within philosophy and I think within cognitive science generally, that's not really the point of separation. I mean, you can believe things with greater or lesser conviction. It's really like it's a probability distribution of knowledge we're talking about. There are things that you are absolutely certain of, you would bet your life on. Uh, there are things that you think are very likely to be true. You still count them as knowledge, but you know, until you hear otherwise, you, you'll think this is probably the way things are, but you're, you wouldn't bet everything on it. And then there are gradations below that where you think the preponderance of evidence and argument is pointing in one direction. You're, you're certainly weighted that way, but you don't really think you have a complete picture of that part of reality in hand. And all of this is a matter of belief to one or another degree in the sense that we're using the term. That's right. We're not going to distinguish there. We're going to treat belief as basically anything you hold true about the world. And, you know, you mentioned the process of how we form beliefs. I think that's, a, that's an interesting topic, how we gain knowledge and how we develop our kind of initial models of the world. And we're not going to get too deeply into that. I think we're going to sort of bypass that issue and just start from the point at which we have formed some belief, we've accepted some piece of information as true. And then what happens? Let's say we encounter a new piece of information that contradicts the old one. How do we revise our beliefs? Because this, this really is the biggest challenge that we face. And there are a couple of effects from cognitive psychology that are relevant to this that we're going to talk about. The first one is called the continued influence effect. The idea here is that even after correcting a belief that was formed on the basis of misinformation, we still show evidence of that initial wrong belief affecting the way we think. So there's a classic experimental paradigm, which was developed in the 1990s, where you give people a fictional story about something like a warehouse fire. And you tell them there was this big fire in the warehouse that was started in a closet, 
and there was paint cans and oil left in the closet. And that's, you know, probably why this fire got out of control. And then for half the subjects, you correct one piece of information and for the other half you don't. So for half the subjects, you might additionally tell them, well, a police report came in later and it turned out there wasn't any oil and gas in the closet. And then you interview these people and you ask them about the fire and you ask them to explain why the fire happened and to give you some details. And even when the information about the oil and gas in the closet was corrected, they've been told there wasn't any, anything in that closet. People still explain the fire in terms of things like, well, you know, oil fires are harder to put out or uh, the, you know, the neg negligence of the company leaving those dangerous things in the closet. You can mm -hmm. still show that there's, the belief persists. You know, they, they weren't able to go in there with an eraser and just erase it or, or delete it and, and all of the subsequent thoughts that they had about it. And this is the continued influence effect. Yeah, this is a fairly sinister bug in our software, which uh, I'm not sure what the the remedy for it is in the end. I mean, this is something that we have to be continually on our guard for. This also goes by the name of the illusory truth effect. And again, it's even in the disconfirmation of false information, the initial false information gets ramified in people's memory. And I, and I noticed this in myself. I, actually, I'm going to ping you as a, as a naive subject on, on this point and see if you have a similar contamination of memory. Do you remember the McMartin preschool saga? The, this is, was part of the, the kind of satanic ritual abuse panic craze that happened in the 80s. Yes. And there was the McMartin preschool, which was the, the most famous instance of this alleged abuse. Do you, do you remember that case at all? Uh, vaguely, I think that there were some parents who basically got in some kind of a, a hysteria about satanic abuse of the children. Right. Now, Ed, what do you think the net result of that case was? What, was there actual abuse at a preschool or like, what's your memory right. of that? Right. My, my, my revised narrative is that there was no abuse and that the, there, were, there was no actual satanic cult involved. Okay, good. Well, yeah, you, you were better than I was. Cause so, so when I, I hadn't thought about this in, in years, and then I had a podcast on some related topic maybe two years ago. I forget who I was talking to. And I went to look this up, expecting that there was, there was some fire where there was all this smoke, but I, I just didn't you know, remember the details. And it turns out, this is just the ultimate example of you know, belief persistence in my case, because this had been fully debunked. I mean, this was, this trial went on for years. I mean, one, one of the teachers spent five years in prison and then finally got acquitted. All charges were dropped. Hundreds of kids were interviewed with techniques that are, are now like textbook errors in how not to interview children about alleged abuse. They created a, a psychological experiment seemingly designed to produce false memories and false confessions and just sheer confabulation. And this whole thing exploded, but it had been lodged in my memory as, God, there was probably something really heinous that happened over there at the McMartin Preschool. I'm, I'm so glad those people were brought to justice. But this is a, an awful piece of our code where we have a truth bias. And it seems like this may be based on kind of a default setting of accepting anything propositional that we understand may include some tacit acceptance. And actually, the philosopher Spinoza conjectured about this in the, back in the 17th century. And there have been several studies that have supported this. And, and actually, our own studies of belief with fMRI supported this based on our, our behavioral measures in that we saw that people were faster to accept propositions as true than they were to reject them as false. And this is true even of propositions that are equivalently simple. So, you know, if I give you the, a set of equations, uh, you know, two plus two equals four, two plus three equals four, you know, one is true, one is false. They're equally simple. And yet you will answer the true ones. You will respond true to true on average faster than you will respond false to false. And that seems to suggest that our default setting is, is to accept it as true and that rejecting it as false is a further cognitive judgment that, ha that takes time to render. That's interesting. Yeah, that's definitely one of the features. I think it is easier to accept the statements that were given as true 
You hit upon one of the other cognitive bugs at play, which is this repetition effect in memory, where mm. just hearing something multiple times, you know, the more times we hear it, the more likely we are to accept it as true. And this is particularly sinister in the case of misinformation correction, because the correction itself often involves a restatement of the false belief. So if you say, you know, there, there wasn't paint in the closet, the idea of paint in the closet has to be invoked in order to understand that sentence. Mm. And so the correction can serve as another repetition and make it more difficult to delete that. The other factor here is that when we accept something is true, you know, we, we don't stop thinking about it. It's not like we just have this one sentence that exists on its own separate from all other ideas in our mind that there was paint or oil in that closet. We start thinking about all of the ramifications, the consequences, the other things that follow from that belief. And we start to build our mental models upon these, these, these foundations that we have. And so it's like, you know, pulling out a one piece of code when there's all these other pieces of code that have already followed from it. Hmm. Now there's a, an alleged further iteration of this, which seems even more dysfunctional, although there's, I think there's some question as to whether or not this is replicated, but this is, this meme spread uh, widely in the culture. It'll be ironic if we have to debunk it and find that we can't because the putative effect is invoked, but there's something called the, the backfire effect that many people now think they know something about. What is this and, and what do we think we know about it? Yeah, so let's let's see if we can do our own little experiment with the continued influence effect if we describe this effect first and then try to debunk it. So th there's a classic study from Brendan Nyhan and Jason Reifler back in 2010 where they presented people with a little fictional news story about the Iraq war. And so this is 2005 or so that the experiment was done and the Iraq war was fresh in people's minds. And rem remember that from that war, there was this whole issue about the Bush administration used the presence of weapons of mass destruction in Saddam's stockpile as a justification for, for the attack. So this little news story contained a quote from President Bush where he made comments alluding to the dangers posed by Saddam Hussein having these weapons. And this is the information that they attempted to correct. So some subjects were given an additional corrective piece of information, which was actually a true piece of information that there was this extensive report, the Dolfa report, which conclusively established that there were basically no weapons of mass destruction, at least not in any quantity that could have made a difference. And half the subjects weren't given that correction. And they were asked afterwards, you know, how strongly they agree with a statement that there were indeed weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And in the conservative subjects who came into this with a pre-existing bias that they probably already believed, and there's evidence that conservatives at the time believed this, believe that the weapons of mass destruction were there. When they received this corrective information, their belief in the weapons of mass destruction actually got stronger. So not only were they not able to correct the misinformation, but the act of correcting made the belief stronger. And that's why it's called the backfire effect. This is a total backfire. You're trying to make the belief weaker and instead you make it stronger. Right. So, and I forget when this happened, a couple of years back, that this might have been born of a, a, New, uh, a New Yorker article on the topic, but this suddenly became very prominent in the culture for people to talk about, think about, worry about the backfire effect. What efforts have been made to replicate this? So there have been many efforts to replicate this, and it has been difficult to replicate. There was a study a couple of years ago by Thomas Wood and Ethan Porter, which pretty much eviscerated the backfire effect. They performed a really large study, 10,000 subjects, 52 different political issues that mm -hmm. they gave them corrective information about. And they were not able to find any evidence of backfire effect across any of these 52 different political issues. In fact, most of the people in the study, something like 85%, did show some significant corrective response to the factual information. So why is the backfire effect difficult to establish? Does it, when does it occur, if ever? Uh, these, these are questions of, of ongoing research, but there's probably a lot of context that matters here. You know, it, it could be easier to give up on one particular fact than it is to give up on some underlying important issue for you. So, for example, in, a, in one of the experiments that you and I did, we gave liberals arguments against gun control. 
And these are people who believe that gun control laws are good. And we gave them information, uh, statistics about, uh, you know, how likely people were to get in gun accidents and things like that. And it might be easy for one of the people in this experiment to change their minds about one of these individual facts, one of these statistics that we gave them, while still maintaining their general position on gun control. In fact, it might be easier to retreat on an individual fact than it is on, on some underlying value. That may be the, un, the easiest path for you to take if you're trying to maintain your core belief about gun control. So there's some complexity there in terms of the context. It also probably matters what the issue is, right? I mean, in this Wood and Porter study, they tried to replicate very specifically the weapons of mass destruction experiment, and they were not able to establish a backfire effect there. But the commitment of the individual subjects to these issues matters a lot. We found in our own research that for some kinds of issues, it's easy to change people's minds. For other kinds of issues, it's very difficult. Those issues that people tend to be most resistant on are the ones that they have some motivation to maintain their belief. And that motivation can be a social motivation. These are some of the most common motivations we have now. You know, beliefs connect us to other people and beliefs that we share with our social group, and particularly those beliefs that help to form our social identity, our sense of who we are in a group, are very, very resistant to change. And they may be more likely to show a backfire effect. Mm. In the end, I think the focus on the backfire effect is a bit of a red herring. It doesn't really matter that much whether corrections backfire or not. The real important question is, why do the corrections not work at all, right? If they're not correcting, if they're not softening our belief, it doesn't really matter that much that they made the belief a little bit stronger. What we really want is to be able to correct our beliefs. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we found in our neuroimaging study on belief change was that the signal in the amygdala and the insula, both regions that report uh, emotional salience uh, above anything else, especially the amygdala, but all, you know, also the, the insula, uh, that predicted people's resistance to changing their beliefs under pressure. So there's, there's the feeling component of it and also the, those cases where there's a kind of a direct line or, or direct justification for the feeling of emotional charge based on one's beliefs about oneself in the world and one's identity. And that's, a, that's really the, the framework that I, I think we would expect would produce this resistance to belief change. Because when, you know, there's, there's the, the not liking how certain facts sound piece, but then there's the, the really not liking it when you sort of do the emotional math, you know, however implicitly, and realize that if you're the sort of person who accepts this new argument or this new set of facts and changes this specific belief, well, then you're no longer the sort of person who can have the friends you have, be in the political party you, you're in, you know, talk to your family at dinner. I mean, many things be begin to come under pressure depending on just how fundamental or, or cherished the belief is that is, is now on the table to be revised. I, mean, I think the punchline for any one of us to just be better people in the world is to notice when this, this machinery is getting invoked. You can feel it happen. You can feel when you're disposed to take the way certain ideas make you feel as a thoroughgoing analysis of their truth, right? If you're kind of doing epistemology by fear and anger and disgust and some primary emotions that are getting triggered by specific ideas. The place where I've experimented personally uh, with this is um, on the topic of burning wood in a fireplace. I, I, I wrote a piece called The Fireplace Delusion a few years back. When I stumbled upon this example, quite literally at a dinner party. You know, I'm somebody who has known for many years that there's nothing magical about fireplace smoke. It's, I mean, the fact that we have, you know, we feel this, this deep nostalgia for it and, and, and sentimentality around it. People love the smell. It conveys, uh, you know, an idea of Christmas and, and other, uh, you know, happy thoughts to most people. All of that notwithstanding, you know, if you can smell smoke when you're burning a fire, you know, that is from a, a health point of view, 
more or less indistinguishable from a you know a diesel engine running in your in your living room, right? I mean, you should be no more sentimental about the smell you're smelling than than the fumes you would be smelling in the case of the engine. But when I found that whenever I push people on this, it triggered a a very familiar you know quasi religious pushback in them. And and this was no matter you know these people could be scientists, these could be you could just see the triggering. I'm feeling one brewing within myself. <laughs> yes, right. I, I don't know if you want me to let it out in this context yeah, yeah. or not, but I, yeah, I you, do have an argument against this. Okay, yeah, let's hear it. Let's, let's hear your argument. Well, the, uh, maybe you've it's heard it. It's going to be spectacular. <laughs> well, well, the argument is that, that fire may have played a special role in human evolution. Yeah. So I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Polly Weissner, an anthropologist, and she studied the, what, what happens when, when the, the bush people of, of uh, Africa, the hunter-gatherer societies, sit around fires at night. And she studied the, the nature of the types of conversations and communications that happen during the day compared to at night. And, you know, what happens at mm. night is that because you don't have the world in front of you, and you, you basically can't talk about business and the here and now of perceptual things that are confronting you, the conversation turns to other times and places, and people start telling stories. And there's this whole sort of a storytelling culture around the fire that comes out of this. And this may have been something that's been very important for, for human culture that we therefore have a nostalgia for. And I think it extends into things like watching movies and theaters, you know, where we all sit around a flickering light and watch things together. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's uh, quite a heartwarming uh, uh, <laughs> thesis. <laughs> it's actually something yeah, I, I do discuss it in The Fireplace Delusion. And I mean, I would just point out that you know, whether something has uh, played a role in evolution is rarely an indication of of whether it's uh, normative or optimal now, right? I mean, obviously, sure. you know, outgroup violence, you know, tribal violence has... No, no, I just think it might explain why we have those feelings about it. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it, but it offers no indication that breathing in wood smoke is healthy, you know, or any healthier than, than smoking cigarettes or, you know, sure. breathing in other forms of air pollution. And the data on, on this is just, we just know this to be true. And as a, as a matter of public health, we know that I believe there's, there's nothing that kills more people, you know, globally than dirty sources of fuel in the, in the home every year. I mean, we're talking about literally millions of people who die every year because they're, you know, largely in the developing world, they use, that, you know, wood that, and, I gotta tongue say, and other kinds of fuel. I got to say that fact sounds like one of the ones we made up for our experiment. Okay. <laughs> we, we should remember. Yeah, we should. We, we, that, was, uh, that was hilarious. We were making up facts for the experiment and perhaps did people lasting damage if we couldn't correct those facts, if we only ramify those facts in, in the correcting them afterwards. Yeah. But no, it's, uh, I, I'll have to get the data on how many people die, but it, it is enormous because much of the world is still using dirty fuel. But it's the air pollution in a city like San Francisco or Los Angeles, based on the, just the recreational burning of wood in the winter, you know, it's not even being used as a fuel source. It's just, you know, people are burning wood fires in their fireplaces just for the fun of it. There's no question that that increases emergency room visits based on, you know, pulmonary and um, cardiac events. And this is all stuff that has been studied and bemoaned by public health people. But, you know, we have this sentimental attachment to burning wood and people are, are reluctant to, to get over it. Yeah, the, the, the role of, of feelings and, and emotions in this whole process of belief is, is really interesting. And there's, there are multiple aspects of it. I mean, on the one hand, you're right that that if we over we re, if we rely too much on our feelings, we can be led astray. And just because we we feel something is true, for example, doesn't mean or good for us, like the fire, doesn't mean that it is. And certainly in our experiments, we saw the involvement of negative emotions. You know, when you're challenged, you can have this feeling that you know it feels bad. You want to get away from the source of the challenge. And in fact, one of the most effective self-protective mechanisms we have against changing our beliefs is to completely avoid being challenged. And we're very good at avoiding information that challenges our beliefs and avoiding putting ourselves in situations where we might have to encounter something that we don't like to hear. So there are these negative emotions that can underlie 
our decisions about what to believe and about what evidence to even look at. And there's, there's some evidence that these feelings might mediate the whole process of, of belief change. On the other hand, there are other feelings, you know, just because something is a feeling or an emotion doesn't mean that it's necessarily part of an irrational process, right? We have, we have to recognize that yeah. emotions are there because they have conferred some advantage throughout the course of history. So they're at least potentially helpful. And there are feelings that are more subtle that are involved in this process, like this, the feeling of certainty or the feeling of uncertainty. Those are not purely cognitive experiences. They have some kind of a, a feeling a component that can help mm. increase the saliency of the, those thought processes for us. Well, yeah, as your own colleague, boss, mentor, Antonio Damasio has demonstrated, this classical split between reason and emotion doesn't make any sense. I mean, just neurologically speaking, and, and when people have you know, specific injuries to the orbital frontal cortex, and they're, thereafter can't feel the implications of otherwise knowledge they otherwise seem to have, they can't make that knowledge behaviorally relevant and operative. There's a kind of classic gambling tasks where people seem to know the right strategy but continually bet unwisely because they can't make the right strategy guide their, their behavior. So it, it is an interesting problem Feeling states are part of our cognitive apparatus. I mean, the feeling of certainty and the flip side, the feeling of doubt, they're not dispensable, and yet they can also become uncoupled to the legitimate modes of thought that should deliver certainty and doubt. In some ways, they're orthogonal to cognition, and in some ways, they're indispensable for it. The red flag for me is... When you realize that you want reality to be a certain way and you're trying to convince yourself that it is that way. I mean, there's a reason why wishful thinking and obvious bias in the direction one is arguing for, conflicts of interest, this goes by, you know, under many framings. There's a reason why all of that is stigmatized when it comes time to think clearly about what's going on in the world. That's right. Wanting something is absolute poison to the process of trying to find the truth. And that's why we have all these mechanisms within the scientific method to try to eliminate uh, the effects of, of those things. And, you know, just to emphasize one of the other things you talked about earlier, it's really hard to underestimate the effects of wanting things to remain the same in our social relationships. I mean, the stakes can be so high for some of these decisions that is virtually impossible for us to change our minds. I talked to someone who was a career political analyst and worked in the Bush administration and the Reagan administration back in the 80s. And he was a Republican, worked at a Republican think tank. And over the course of five years or so, he started to question his beliefs and he eventually became a, a liberal, completely changed his political orientation. It's this kind of a big change that's very rare. But in order to do this, the consequences that he faced, I mean, he, first of all, once his friends found out that he was saying things against Bush, they started to separate from him. He lost his job because he could no longer work at a Republican think tank. He lost mm -hmm. all of his friends. He actually lost his partner as well. So it was a complete and utter social annihilation was the cost of changing his mind about some political facts. And so when you think about what people are up against when we try to challenge their political beliefs. It, it isn't just changing some belief about the state of the world. It's really changing themselves and, and their whole lives. And that's just very difficult to do. Yeah, I've obviously heard a lot of this in the religious space. I mean, many people have contacted me who are atheists or have had their faith erode to some considerable degree. and yet they're surrounded by people among whom they can't admit any of their doubts for fear of losing their marriages, losing their jobs. I mean, there, there's a whole support group for pastors who have lost their faith, who are still functioning as pastors. I mean, it was a, it's called the Clergy Project, and there was a, an online forum where there were hundreds of working pastors who were still showing up in church every Sunday, preaching the gospel, and yet they were as atheistic behind closed doors as 
Richard Dawkins or Daniel Dennett. I mean, they were just, you know, they're fully in the closet as atheists and trying to figure out what to do with their lives. So it's a, um, a very common problem. But, it, you know, as you, as you say, there's, it's easy to see how people don't want to take this on cognitively because of all the dominoes that then fall thereafter or would have to fall if one were going to admit the implications of changing one's view. So g- given that problem laid out quite dire terms, is there any hope? What can we do to increase our belief flexibility? Part of it is contained in this, this anchor to identity and concern about who one is in the world and you know, self-esteem and related psychological states. It seems to me that undermining one's notion of a solid self that gets carried through from one day to the next or one moment to the next and coming to view oneself as more of a an ongoing project of discovery and and change there's a, a kind of sunk cost fallacy uh that one can fall into with a a static notion of the self you have a, some commitment to being consistent with who you were yesterday, even when you discover who you were yesterday was a moron, right? Or <laughs> you're just, you know, flagrantly wrong on some topic of real significance. One can add a, a different piece of programming here, which is rather than wanting to be consistent with who you were in the past, which again, I, I think is a kind of sunk cost fallacy if you, if you really were wrong in the past, you're current self-model could be one in which you don't want to be wrong or mistaken for a moment longer than you need to be, right? So like you, you want to be very quick to move the moment movement becomes an imperative, you know, an imperative in terms of its rationality or, or the ethics of it. I mean, just the, the moment you, you see the thing you've been committed to, even for your entire life up until that moment, is mistaken, well, the moment where the clock is really ticking is in how long it takes you to pivot to the new thesis. And if you're fast, you know, you can, I mean, that's a, just a, an absolute victory, right? Whereas if you dig in and spend another year of your life defending the indefensible, that's a double loss. I mean, not only were you wrong all those times before when you couldn't see it, now you're doubly wrong and hypocritical while you're fighting this doomed battle to maintain your previous belief, even as it's crumbling in your hands. Yeah, that's right. And there, there is some experimental uh, evidence on this, that activating a, a mindset that orients you towards transcending the self makes, makes you more amenable to persuasion, probably because of exactly what you're talking about. When people are less focused on hanging on to the consistency of who they are, uh, that makes them more open to new information. And we, this is a, something that we've been interested in looking into at, at USC. Um, we actually had a study planned about this before the pandemic to see if mindfulness training could influence open-mindedness. And we expect that it, it will because, you know, the more you train in having an objective orientation towards yourself, the easier it is to have objective relationships to information that comes in. And the other thing is that the more you pay attention to the kinds of feelings that you have in response to information, the easier it is to decouple those feelings from the automatic responses you have to them. You know, mm-hmm. if I notice myself feeling bad in response to something that you tell me, and I see that for what it is, uh, I'm not necessarily going to take the automatic response of, of getting away or the other kinds of strategies people take when, when they're not feeling good about information coming in, which involve things like discrediting it or you know, arg- counter-arguing and those sorts of things. And then I think the other thing that's important to point out is that because we know that misinformation is difficult to correct, that it's easy to accept something as true, but it's difficult to change that belief once we have it, it becomes super important to be very vigilant about what we initially accept as true. We have to Hmm. cultivate some kind of skepticism, especially about things that are related to ideas we have about ourselves and about, about who we are. After the break, more with Sam Harris and Jonas Kaplan. Stay with us. 
I think it's also important to recognize that that information spaces have a kind of structure and there are just bad structures on offer. Like if you ask yourself, what makes a conspiracy theory a mere conspiracy theory? And how can you tell the difference between a conspiracy theory that is really a kind of a dangerous and divisive waste of many people's time and just an area of totally legitimate information that has just not been appropriately mined and set to order by you know any mainstream institution so it's it's ill favored but for bad reasons right and it's hard to judge but there can be I mean, there's a certain obvious tells. I mean, with with conspiracy thinking, if you take like the 9-11 truth conspiracy or, you know, conspiracy, the, the recent conspiracy about a massive election fraud, you know, Donald Trump won in a landslide, but it was, uh, the election was stolen from him based on, you know, massive collaboration among people across you know, numerous states. One feature that this type of thinking tends to display is that there's no real underlying thesis. In fact, there are dozens or even hundreds of incompatible theses that are being alleged. And basically, the what's happening is the, the method is there's just an, a mere search for anomalies, right? And the anomalies are not organized in any way so as to point in a coherent direction. You're just multiplying anomalies, right? And there are always anomalies. In any state of human affairs, you can always find some weird things which seem to cry out for explanation. And when an explanation isn't immediately forthcoming, it just takes a, you know, the conspiratorial mind to say, well, aha, see, that's, you know, how do you explain the fact that the U.S. Air Force was running an exercise that put their F-15s thousands of miles out to sea on the morning of September 11th. I could be making this up, right? This, I believe there was something like that happening. There were, there were some drills being run that day, which people took as, aha, so that, that's just a strange coincidence that you, you would have put our fighter jets you know, out of range of this problem. And you start multiplying facts of that sort which again, don't add up to any coherent thesis. They just look strange in juxtaposition with what happened. So you're just uh, sowing doubt about the existing theory, but not, not building a new theory. Yeah, yeah. And for me, I mean, when, when you look at human behavior, because there's the level at what people say they will do and, you know, wish they would do. Then there's a level of their... In, incentives, you know, what they're being incentivized to do. And in most cases, their incentives are overwhelming. You know, it's great to have your your life aligned in such a way that your your stated beliefs and commitments are actually aligned with your the incentives that are pushing you around. But take 9-11 truth. The numbers of people who would have had to have collaborated in the murder of thousands of their fellow Americans to bring that off is, I mean, we're literally talking about thousands of people. I mean, just when you talk about what is required to, uh, in this case, rig the World Trade Center to explode so that it could fall into its own footprint, right? I mean, this is what is alleged. I mean, the jet fuel doesn't burn that hot, right? So there's no way the buildings could have come down based on the the mere pancaking of, of the floors that those those buildings were rigged to explode in advance of September 11th. Well, how many people does it take to do that? And how many people does it take to know about that, to do that? And, and what would have incentivized these people to suddenly become psychopaths who could, with a clear conscience, murder their fellow Americans? For what reason? Oh, to give an excuse to go invade uh, Iraq? Well, then why, why make it look like every hijacker was, was from Saudi Arabia? It's not coherent even when you, you know, get, you know, a few nodes into the conversation. But what's overwhelmingly unlikely is that you could incentivize people to do this with a clear conscience. And so it is with this, you know, the election fraud allegations. Like, we've got Republican election officials and Republican secretaries of state and Republican governors and Republican judges 
and even Republicans who've been put on the Supreme Court by Trump himself. And the allegation is now that all of them have collaborated seamlessly across many states to disenfranchise millions of voters to get Biden elected, even when some of these people demonstrably supported Trump up to the minute of the election. Right. So it just the incentives aren't there. And people tend to totally overlook this when they're buying into some confection of a recitation of anomalies that are designed to give some shape to what we call a conspiracy theory. I think the role of incentives there really brings up the question of what, what the purpose of belief is. You know, I think a lot of us assume that the purpose of belief is to develop some model about the world that allows the brain to make accurate predictions about what's going to happen. And if that's the purpose of belief, you want your beliefs to be as accurate as possible. You want them to conform to reality. But if the purpose of belief is to demonstrate your connection with a certain social group or to demonstrate your loyalty to Donald Trump, for example, then you're going to have a different set of beliefs. So these mm -hmm. beliefs can have different purposes and they serve different purposes in, in different contexts. And that's, you know, I think in the case of conspiracy theories, there, there is this other purpose, which is a, a social one. You know, there's, there's all the feelings associated with the, the fun people seem to have with these conspiracy theories and sharing mm -hmm. them with each other and, and talking about them and discussing them and forming a, a consensus about them. That is, that is also one of, one of the motivators there. I mean, consensus is one of these heuristics that we use to decide if something's true. You know, if a whole bunch of other people seem to believe it's true, then we're more likely to believe it. And so there are all of these cognitive biases and motivations and feelings that are interacting with each other to produce this situation we have now. Yeah, that the connection between belief and loyalty to a cause or to a group, I mean, belief and affiliation is interesting. And that is also something that has been more or less explicitly invoked by every demagogic leader. You know, when an overt untruth is being told, right, when, the, when a lie is being told and it's, there's really not even a pretense of substantiating it, right? It's just, it's obviously a lie. It is coming across less as an assertion of information and, and more as a loyalty test, right? You're like the people who will share in the lie are signaling their loyalty to a cause rather than their, the total combustibility of their cognition, right? right? Well, I just think it, it's worth maybe thinking about what the potential value of that is, because I, I know we're, we're wary of these evolutionary type arguments, but mm. you know, it is possible that, that there is some value to us to building a shared set of beliefs with other people. That, you know, it's easier to work together as a group when we have a collectively agreed upon model of the world. And that might be why we have these impulses to, to conform you know, our, our beliefs with other people and, and to negotiate them such that they're, they're the same in some ways and why it does feel good to have the same belief as somebody else. Oh, yeah. Well, I, there's certainly an argument to make that this is one of the, the roots of, of religion because it, it gives you something to appeal to. I mean, the, the belief system to which everyone can profess allegiance allows a group to cohere beyond any shared interests based on kinship, right? I mean, the, the moment group, groups get big enough where you're guaranteed to be meeting strangers out there in the world every day of your life, to have a some reference point that can be linguistically indicated whereby you can very, very quickly signal to a stranger that you guys are on the same team. Traditionally, religion has been the, the master structure there. Right, like we we believe in the same God. No more need be said to know that we're both in group, and the the other guys over there are out group. Uh, and that's uh, it's easy to see the tribal utility of that. Right. There's one place where my, I think mindfulness can actually help here, or at least open up a space in the mind that that most people are not aware it's, it's getting closed down by default. And that's just the 
uh, to become increasingly sensitive to this process whereby we form opinions. You know, each of us is a an opinion-forming machine, right? We're all, you know, factories of opinions. And if you become more sensitive to this process, you can slow it down and you can ask yourself, well, why do I have to be so quick to know what I think about this new thing that has just come over the transom, right? So just notice yourself as you encounter new pieces of information out in the world, as you read articles, as you scroll on social media, and you see various states of the world described and asserted. And this process of of reacting and consolidating your point of view on each one of these topics, just inspect that a little more in real time and slow it down and see if you can actually not resolve what you believe is true about each new thing quite so quickly and actually entertain just not having an opinion for even minutes at a time as you let new information in. It's a muscle that in most of us is contracting all the time, right? And it's it's something you can actually kind of consciously relax. And it's not to say that it's inappropriate to form a strong opinion about any specific thing, but it is a kind of automaticity, which is in the limit, the antithesis of the cognitive flexibility we're talking about wanting to have and, and which would be optimal. Essentially, you want to be like a an Olympic freestyle skier who can ski a, a run of moguls by flexibly, you know, pivoting in precisely those places that you need to pivot, right? It's like you want, you want your knees to be moving that way rather than breaking every time you, you know, you hit a surface that's not level. And what we're seeing so much of the time is either obvious breakage or, or worse, obvious breakage that just goes unacknowledged for the longest time. I mean, it's like it's, it's like a zombie movie. People are dead and they're still walking and they're not admitting they're dead, right, in terms of their, their worldview. And uh, it's not only, you know, frustrating to debate such people, it's totally dysfunctional when you're seeing, you know, vast swaths of society and, and the public conversation become completely impervious to new arguments and, and new information. That's a, a really interesting point about that habit of thought that we seem to have of, of deciding about everything. And I, I wonder what proportion of the opinions that we form was it really necessary to form an opinion about in the sense that, you know, making, deciding about this truth one way or the other is actually going to change our behavior one way or another. Hmm. It's probably a small percentage. Yeah, I mean, so much of our behavior is simply just ejaculating the thing we think, you know, <laughs> to anyone who will listen, right? <laughs> I mean, this is obviously the liability of a podcaster, but we're doing uh, now. we arm ourselves with what we think is true about the world. And the only real cash value of any of that is saying or writing or otherwise expressing those opinions in any context that will permit it. We're trading in memes mostly with respect to these things rather than revising our Actually, this is, this is kind of interesting because at the outset of the COVID pandemic, I noticed this in myself. I noticed a, a disjunction between what I believed, right? Like the opinions I had formed based on incoming information and not only what was behaviorally relevant, but I was just, I, I was actually not integrating what I was paying lip service to into my behavioral routine in any kind of systematic way. So I was noticing myself just in bad faith with respect to my own behavior. I mean, I think I, the place where I really noticed this, like this was early on when all of us had convinced ourselves that wiping down every object that came into the house as assiduously as possible was, was necessary to not get this virus. And I noticed these I was wiping things down, but I was also, it was, there were situations where it was half-hearted enough where I was sort of, it was a kind of pantomime of wiping it down. And 
you know, part of me was just no, noticing the obvious ineffectuality of all this, but then trying to convince myself that some amount of it was was sufficiently better than none of it that, as to not be totally irrational. But at, at one point, I just threw up my hands and realized, okay, there was, there was no way of squaring what I was doing physically in the presence of, you know, new boxes with what I thought I knew about the virus at that point. And it's like, I, I just had to actually just get behind myself and push. Like, either you're going to admit that you don't know what you think you know about the epidemiology of this, or you have to behave differently. But you can't keep being the guy whose behavior is, is not tracking any language that would come out of his mouth when forced to talk about this. And so it was, it was not quite hypocrisy. It was more like, you know, just delusion. Well, well, it doesn't sound like either to me. It sounds like, you know, action is kind of the, the rubber, where the rubber meets the road in terms of belief. And if, if your belief has some amount of uncertainty into it, mm-hmm. then when it's translated into action, that uncertainty needs to be resolved. And so right. I feel like you were experiencing that process of being forced to resolve your certainty about the belief one way or another. Yeah, it's, it's hard to act probabilistically when it's, it really is a binary between you know, doing right. or not doing the thing. I guess that's what it was. I mean, I, I, I'm, I feel less cognitive dissonance than ever on these points now, but it's... I mean, there was, there was so much uncertainty at that beginning time. It was really hard to know what to believe and, and what was true. And so we were all in this kind of epistemological gray area of trying to decide who to listen to and, mm. and what was true about it. Okay, well, this problem is obviously not going away because belief formation is arguably one of the most important, if not the most important thing we do with our minds out in the world. It's the substance of everything that makes for human culture and government and the norms of society. I mean, just, you know, if you believed that we were on the cusp of World War III, because, you know, the New York Times told you. Uh, so well, that would completely subsume everything else uh, that you care about. And that's just a matter of accepting a few propositions coming into your eye or ear in the form of language. So we, we have to get a handle on how we grant credence to specific streams of information and how we can persuade one another when it's time to revise our map of the world. Uh, and both of those processes, you know, you know, trust in institutions like the mainstream media or government and an ability to get out of our tribally enforced echo chambers and persuade people who have a different view of what's going on and, and what should happen next. Both of those principles of communication are breaking down now and in ways that seem deeply unfamiliar. I mean, I think this really is just a matter of what technology is doing to us, so, you know, specifically social media and, and smartphones. But this problem is not going away. So it's, um, let's consider this the, the first volley in a, an ongoing conversation on what we do about changing minds, both those of other people and our own. Yeah, if, there's a, if there is a silver lining to this whole misinformation pandemic that we're living through, it's that people do seem to be spending more time thinking about and, and aware of the, the problems associated with how we form beliefs and how we can change our minds. And so this is a, a, a huge issue of psychology that, that we need to solve. Well, I, I look forward to uh, fighting that war with you, Jonas. Same here. Thanks for listening. If you like this conversation, please go listen to more of Sam on the Making Sense with Sam Harris podcast. If you don't know where to start, there's a lot of them. They also have a new feed called The Best of Making Sense, where you can find Sam's very favorite episodes over the years. 
And if you want to be challenged to change your mind about something, head over to commonsense.news. I suspect you may read something there that flies in the face of what you thought you believed. And we think that's a really good thing. See you next time. This is Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer. By now, you've probably heard of my podcast, The President's Daily Brief. We travel around the world talking about the most pressing news of the day. And the goal is to take complicated issues, both here and abroad, and make them really simple to understand. We also talk about solutions to the problems that we discuss, just like the actual brief delivered to the president each day in the Oval Office. So download and subscribe to The President's Daily Brief, available on all major podcast platforms starting at 6 a.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday. It'd be a pleasure if you joined us.